If you thought defining consciousness is difficult, it's even harder defining dreaming. What are dreams? Why do we have them? And why have so many organisms evolved the capability to dream? That's the start for the second and final part of my conversation with our special guest, Eric Howell, the writer of the always engaging The Intrinsic Perspective Substack newsletter. Josh Wolf and Sam Arsman join me, Danny Crichton, to discuss dreams, the overfitting brain hypothesis, what we can learn from beavers as well as humans playing Tetris, and finally, we end up talking about Eric's essay on why are we not creating more Einsteins and the future of education. Let's dive right on in. The thought I had, which I wanted to ask you, is about these two winters. There was a winter of AI. And there's, of course, in the presumption of the analogy of winter, that there's some cyclicality, some seasons, that there could be a spring uh, that, that, that follows. A winter of AI, a winter of consciousness. I've always had this instinct, this, this suspicion that some of the things we will learn or posit about consciousness and how our brains work will come from computer science and maybe vice versa. You know, a lot of the analogies that we use for neural networks came from the actual biological structure uh, of brains that we then applied in both software and algorithms and, 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 and circuits. And then conversely, I was totally caught, and I, I haven't found another example of this yet, by a theory that you posited, uh, which was this overfitting brain hypothesis. Can you explain that and can you also say if there are other analogies you're finding in the current state of AI research that are informing the analog and biological brains that we have? Sure. I think it's a great observation that we do um, sort of, it's sort of a, a, a more specific form of the notion of taking technologies and trying to understand ourselves through them. That's not always a bad thing, right? Um, because sometimes it can open up new metaphors. I mean, wh one thing is that you know, when I got my PhD, um, you know, I worked on, as I said, I worked on integrated information theory, but that um, the originator, Giulio Trinoni, is also one of the most famous sleep neuroscientists. So he's very interested in why we sleep. Uh, there's this sort of big unanswered question of why do animals spend eight hours a day? I mean, not all animals, obviously, but why do you spend so such a chunk of time sitting around defenseless, um, you know, when you could be out foraging or something? So th that's a real serious scientific question. And um, I became very interested in this question of, well, why do we dream? And, you know, as I was exploring the dream literature, I was extremely dissatisfied with what was in the dream dreaming literature. Um, you had hypotheses like maybe dreaming is for... Um, you know, um, emotional regulation. But then if you look at the majority of dreams, they're sort of emotionally neutral. You have the theory that maybe dreaming is for memory memory replay, okay? So you're replaying the memories and there's all sorts of exciting, you know, papers that get put into, you know, nature and science about memory replay and sleep, you know, except that you don't replay any of your memories during sleep and everyone knows that. And, um, you know, just, it just does not at all fit with the phenomenology of dreaming, by which I mean, if you were to describe the conscious experience of dreaming, what is that like? I wanted to see if I could put together a proposal that would shift the focus of the field away from these hypotheses that seem to take dreams as these epiphenomena. So like basically the memory replay people would say, well, you are replaying memories, but it's not that that neural activity is not, you know, the neural activity that's behind your dreaming. Your, your dreaming is sort of this like downstream, like epiphenomenal effect of it or something. Right. Um, so, you, you, you know, they, they come up with stuff like this. So, so I said, well, what if you just took dreaming very seriously and you said that the biological purpose of dreams are the dreams themselves? It's to experience this dreaming. 
right? In the same way that you go around the world and you experience things um, when you're awake. And if you look at dreaming, it has um, all sorts of properties in its in its conscious phenomenology. So dreaming is sparse. It's much sparser. Like things aren't as, um, you know, you don't see your full visual scene in a dream most of the time. You have sort of like this abstract, sketchy sort of conscious experience that you could describe as like lossy. Dreaming is hallucinatory, right? So it's it's extremely, you know, very strange category breaking things happen in dreams. Um, and all those things struck me as very similar to the manipulations that machine uh, learning theorists do to their data to get their systems to generalize. So this is this very common problem in in statistical modeling, which is called overfitting. And it's basically like if you have a bunch of points, you know, along a line, you can always draw some line that just like goes randomly and wildly and matches every single point. And so you can sort of overfit your your model and the way to, you know, and there's always this drive to do that when learning. And the way to avoid that is generally just sort of corrupt the data that you're feeding it and make it weird. Um, and it, so it just seemed very obvious to me that that is very possibly what dreaming is doing. It's just this corruption of data and the corruption is the point. The corruption is healthy. Which is so counterintuitive because you would have thought you want to train a model precisely. You have to train it more and more and narrower and narrower. But the counterintuitive conclusion is no, you want to introduce noise into the system so that when the machine or the algorithm or the program or the prompt is encountering reality, it's more adaptive to actually find the thing as opposed to being very narrowly trained and making errors of omission. Uh, and, and so how does that apply then to like an evolutionarily adaptive hypothesis for us? If we are, if hallucinations are actually uh, a feature, not a bug of dreaming. The, the way it would apply is just if effectively that, you know, there, there's a couple of paradoxes about dreaming. And one is that, you know, you can find cases where people just dream less and less as they get older, you know, and so on. Um, and it's like, if, if, if dreaming is, you know, so massively evolutionarily important, then, you know, presumably we'd be trying to dream as much as possible and there wouldn't be drop off and you wouldn't be able to sort of easily stop, uh, you know, dreams with drugs and things like that. But if dreaming is this sort of constant massaging of your day-to-day -day learning, where every day you wake up and you go out to the world and you learn the world. But humans are, and, and everyone will say this, you can go look at like, you know, um, all, all the leading, you know, AI people will say this, regardless of what you think about AI versus human intelligence, humans definitely need a lot less data to, um, to learn things, which probably means that we have even bigger problems for overfitting because we're, we're learning stuff on so few samples, right? So then it would be very natural if, you know, at night the brain tried to say, okay, well, I've, I've, I've gotten more fitted to the world today, but what I actually need to do is shake up my models and sort of return myself to a less perfectly fitted state to, to get ready for the next day. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's true that like for, for organisms, I think there's a sense of which organisms have a maybe more boring life than we, uh, we think about, you know, it's like if you're a beaver or something, your days are kind of similar, right? And then, and, and it would be very easy to sort of fit everything far too much and not be able to like recognize a strange predator or something like that. You know, this whole hypothesis also came about and why I was very interested in. I've also always wondered why humans love fictions. 
I think it's very easy to imagine, you know, some sort of strange, some sort of alien race of who might be called like, you know, um, you know, uh, diehard realists or something who would say, why are you reading about Harry Potter? Like you're a biological organism. You exist in this universe. This universe has its laws and its physics and its historical events. Why are you so interested in this imaginary castle it's a lie all the characters are lies there's no such thing as harry potter you know this is this is literally a complete waste of time and if you look at the more like science quote-unquote scientific you know proposals about this there are things like steven pinker's you know proposal in uh, how the mind works uh not not i don't want to originate to him but something he believes is you know that this is it's basically cheesecake you know it's like well you're, you're asking why do humans like cheesecake humans like cheesecake because we like salt and fat um, and uh, and sugar, and so we like cheesecake because it's just all those things. And so you know you can you can make this sort of evolutionary thing where it's like it's it's sort of maladaptive that we actually like fictions um, and so on. And I always felt that that was very um, far too like sort of reductive. And so um, you know this theory to me the, the the obvious extension of it is that the reason we're so interested in fictions is because fictions are generally sparse hallucinatory sort of stranger events than day-to-day life and they help our brains it's literally like dreaming when we're awake and i'll also say that maybe you know the rise of fictions you know in the modern world also happened when the world got really complex and what do systems do when they have you know a very complex environment well they try to overfit to it you know and 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 so i think you know, regardless of exactly the the specifics of it, I think that there's a very clear analogy that um, you know fictions are a lot like dreaming when you're awake. I mean, I've even noted that the average television show is about twenty to thirty minutes, and that's about the length of time as a REM cycle. That's fascinating. Given that you were saying that like it's easier to kind of overfit for like a beaver, given how they have simpler life than maybe like humans, um, is there anything testable there in the sense that? people with more interesting lives would actually have more boring dreams and vice versa. Is there something there? Yeah. So I've, I've looked into exactly this question and I think the best cases are some very few studies that have looked at dreams in prisoners because they have a very, very sort of different, more, you know, constrained, um, life. And the issue is, is that dream studies are not very good. So they don't have a lot of data. I think in general, the the hypothesis would basically say, you know, if, if your life was, you know, deeply boring, you probably should be vividly hallucinating at night, your brain will like really try to really try to, you know, recover from that. And you know, I, I've looked at a few stuff involving prisoners and so, so some of it is like, you know, I was in solitary and I began to like have really, really vivid dreams. Another supporting thing is that if you put someone just in a sensory deprivation tank, they will automatically eventually start to hallucinate. And it just like happens happens very naturally without without input. And I think that that's probably also, you know, maybe some of the same like underlying um, underlying mechanisms. You know, again, the, the 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 like, how good is our data about dreaming for prisoners, and like dream frequency in some sort of like controlled way is is not very good. And that's been my frustration with a lot of the uh, the dreaming literature. If you consume more fiction, do you have to actually sleep less? Is that also another implication of this? Or we yeah i wanted to test that i wanted to test that that was a real thing i wanted to test um that's amazing 
um and it, it, it again it's 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 very hard right um one 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 hypothesis would be that basically if you took humans and they were learning something and you gave them some equivalent of artificial dreams in the tasks that they were learning so so one very clear thing that supports this hypothesis is that there is one way that's very easy to get people to dream about a particular subject and that is to have them learn a new thing during that day and do a bunch of it so, you know, they contest this with the original very famous test of this was using Tetris when it was people who had not played Tetris and they just had to play Tetris for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and then, you know, the next day people would be like, I dreamed about Tetris. And so it's like, you know, you're becoming specifically fitted, you know, for this task. Like it's very good evidence that dreaming is some somehow about, you know, manipulation of, of learning and massaging of learning. And so, you know, but what if, what and but when they report you know what they're dreaming of tetris is like it's like um you know it's it's not like they're actually playing tetris right it's not memory replay they're sort of looking at tetris and the forms are coming down and they're mixing and stuff doesn't really quite make sense right it's not like they're getting extra practice you could even argue that it's strange because it's like they shouldn't they be getting worse because you're dreaming about something that you're you're like memorizing something that doesn't make any sense right and so you know one hypothesis would be and one hypothesis that i've really wanted to test for a long time would be that if you did learning for something like tetris or some other new task i think like vr mazes is probably better now could you improve the learning rate of people by putting in forcing them to have artificial dreams where it's like you're playing tetris and then suddenly the tetris looks the way Tetris would look like in a dream where you don't really have much control and so the things are going on and you're forced to sort of like wildly generalize about what's happening. And then you go back to learning regular Tetris and could you sort of put in these artificial dreams in there to, uh, to speed up the learning process? I think if you could get strong behavioral results like that, it would be great. But I, I want to point out that, again, I have very high standards for empirical data and they're almost never reached by... Um, anything in, in neuroscience <laughs> like like believe me like anything like i i i think i think for a hypothesis like this i began to work with somebody who was doing training in in mice you know and and the first step was just okay let's let's make sure that sleep has an effect on memory right because that's the first step it's just like are you know if, if these mice are sleeping that will have an effect on memory you know on the maze and like the first time they do the experiment it's just like a null result where there's just no effect whatsoever for you know sleeping and then you can go to literature and you can find a million papers that say this right so um you know it's not that i think that that was you know correct or something but it's just to say that listen um most of the people who do this sort of stuff are very willing to overlook some of the kind of ridiculous <laughs> assumptions that go into their empirical data. So, uh, I'm caught by okay. the I'm caught by the idea of uh, synthetic data sets, which are being increasingly used to create, you know, uh, and train AI. And uh, I guess we sort of biologically seem to create our own synthetic data sets. And then I think about uh, some of the fictions that we create that can persist and grow, and uh, you know whether they are. Uh, all the kinds of things that Yuval Harari has uh, documented from religions to belief in countries and identities and all these kinds of things. But then if you have systems of error correction, which we intrinsically or biologically may have ourselves, then we can avoid diluting ourselves from quote unquote reality. Uh, but if we don't, then maybe in an extreme version, both in societies and in individuals, you get certain neural conditions, be it schizophrenia or something else, uh, sort of provocative uh, uh, analogies. 
Uh, last thing I wanted to ask was around a very influential essay that you wrote around looking at one of the things that most people would bemoan is failing. It's not our infrastructure, but our education. And uh, you noted that some of the great folks of history uh, in this essay, which I think was why are we not creating more Einsteins, uh, were, were mentored one-on-one. -on -one. And today's modernity, to today's modern education system for the past 100 plus years is 30 people, 40 people in one classroom asymmetrically being taught by one teacher. And that uh, it seems like AI and technology may usher in a world where we do get one-on-one -on -one tutoring and mentoring from the equivalent of the aristocrats of yesteryear. Can you comment on that? It's one of the few things, it's one of the few potential outcomes of AI that I'm honestly, I would honestly be excited about, right? Uh, I'm not super excited about AI writing all the stories and making all the art. That sounds uh, pretty, absolutely terrible to me. Uh, and like you couldn't, you couldn't write a clearer dystopia uh, in my eyes. But, but if, if, if it's actually the case that you can supplement, you know, education, with you know good ai tutors now i think that there are some inevitable limitations in that i think a big and in fact i'm going to write a piece about this a big part of the reason why tutoring is so effective is because um because it's social so it provides you know role models and it sort of provides an entry way into the world when it's sort of just an ai you know i don't think that it has the same uh vibrancy or vitality like humans are ultimately social creatures but if you look at all these, um, you know, and, and I, I'm very open about the fact that, you know, most of the time when I, you know, when you make a claim about history like this, right, you, 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 you're, you're inevitably sort of restricting your scope, you know, very significantly. So generally, I'm talking about, you know, European geniuses from like 1450 to 1850, which is, you know, a huge number of the names that we know and that are, you know, very, very famous. And and if you look at the educational methods of the time, they lean way more towards tutoring and one-on-one -on -one work than they do to uh, classroom stuff. There's far more homeschooling, particularly among the aristocrats. Oftentimes, the tutors will live at the institution. Bertrand Russell had dozens of tutors, many of whom came and stayed at, I believe it was Pembroke Lodge, uh, where he grew up, you know, and... And it's funny, you know, with Bertrand Russell, like I, I now that I'm like older, I almost like have little patience for his, you know, memoirs where he's always bemoaning his um his his grandmother who raised him as being sort of too like religious and overbearing and she like kept him out of the school system so that she could like make him more religious and he became an atheist at fifteen and sixteen and like kept kept you know, that was really big for him and and then, but then looking back, I'm like, well, yes, but you were also treated to just a revolving door of like some of the brightest minds of all time. And, you know, I, you know, and, and he later, um, tried to put his, his ideas about education, which was essentially the opposite of, of, of how he was raised into practice where he would, you know, not do like a sort of unschooling where, you know, children would come and they would just express their own innate childish creativity. And, and, um, you know, there would, there, you know, the role of the teacher would be really like light and so on. And, you know, he just, he just, these kids just drove him mad, you know, when he tried to actually put in these sort of, uh, ideas about education, you know, it was a huge failure. Um, and, 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 and so I think that, you know, if, if, if we look, just just back at who would we want in the modern day like we've been talking a lot about 
the you know the, the problem of we, we have these open questions in science and this notion of like big ideas that can possibly fix them where are the people who who should be uh fixing that i mean uh, you know a lot of my views on education come from the fact that when i was you know 14 or 15 this is sort of during the internet revolution you know i was reading articles you know in time magazine or so on that was like you know we are going to distribute the world's information to everyone on earth for free. And so obviously there are going to be like a thousand times more Einsteins because right intelligence is just this genetic thing and we're just going to give everyone access to the information. So, you know, we just, we're, we're obviously just going to increase all these geniuses by like 10, tenfold. We're going to have this golden era. It's like so on. Has the internet done any of that? No, I mean, I think I, it's one of the most damning indictments of human nature of all time that we didn't get a cultural and intellectual golden age after we made education, self-motivated education, essentially free. Uh, It's almost unimaginable. Like you would never have predicted, like if you were almost anyone in 1992 and you were speculating about the effects of the internet and you realized that everyone would be able to get like a USB drive and they could get, you know, a, a, a free encyclopedia and they could Google any question and that your YouTube would be filled with math tutorials by really, like really fun math tutorials and that, you know, textbooks, you could just get a PDF of them online almost anywhere and so on you know, you would just be so thrilled about what we're about to experience and none of that materialized. And I think that that should probably tell us something about how geniuses get created. And it's not just, you know, it's not just innate gifts plus access. It's something more. And people used to be particularly aristocratic class in Europe were very clear in their belief that they could construct highly educated minds and put a lot of thought into how to do that. I mean, you could, you know, if you've heard about like the, the grand tour that European, European young aristocrats used to go on, right. A lot of people have heard of this where they would sort of go off and they would tour Europe for years. They didn't go alone. They brought their tutors. Their tutors were the ones showing them around. So that's just shows like how ingrained it was. There's sort of this like lost history of, tutoring. Um, one of my favorite books is The Art of Memory by Richard Yates, which is sort of this like almost like subversive work of history where it says, listen, there used to be this lost art of remembering things where people would use this method of, uh, of loci, the, 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 the method of loci um, to, to, to remember things in these like memory, these is, uh, extravagant memory palaces because you didn't have, you couldn't just bring around copies of books. You actually had to memorize like everything you really wanted. And there was no teleprompter, right? So if you were a politician and you wanted to memorize a speech, this is the method you would use. And and then it, it sort of got completely lost. I think there's an equivalent lost history of education to be written about this these lost methods of of, of tutoring and 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 the and the importance of it and i'm the first to admit that listen like none of that stuff was fair that stuff was wildly inequitable in every sense you can imagine um and it was replaced by you know essentially this system of mass production and i think probably that was sort of the right choice for the vast majority of people but we probably lost this you know elite you know cream of the crop and it probably explains a little bit of the of the fact of how it is that our culture is so much less sort of intellectual, less um, sort of interested in ideas, um, 
um, particularly at the highest upper echelons than it than it used to be. Well, I have to say, I think we have a genius right here. So clearly, uh, the education system. Uh, growing up in your your parents' uh, bookstore. Uh, maybe tutored from the works around you. Uh, we'll, we'll have to get on that on another show. But we are out of time. Uh, Josh and Sam, thank you so much for joining us. And of course, Eric Howell with the proper umlaut there included. Substack newsletter, uh, The Intrinsic Perspective, and the author of the novel, The Revelations, uh, researcher of consciousness, dreams and sleep, so much more. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.